0: This is Mike Fader. Um, I wanted to, before I talk about anything today uh, or everything, wanted to thank everybody who got in touch with me or has been getting in touch with me um, about the uh, shows that I've been doing. I remember it was about uh, a month ago I asked everybody who was listening to get in touch with me because I wanted to try to rate uh, how many people were listening, who was listening. I got into some <clears throat> interesting dialogue with some of the people who wrote to me. And um, on a regular basis now, people are responding to the shows uh, through my website, uh, which is faderfiles.com. So if you want to join people in expressing your opinion about anything I've said, um, negative, positive, or more acu- interestingly to me, um, responses that are personal on your part, like emotional responses that have to do with things that happen in your own life. If I talk about something personal or I talk about something in the world, uh, some experience that you've had or a series of experiences that you've had or are having now, I'm interested. Um, after all, the internet And radio, too, when people respond to it, it's all about connection, Connection, connecting people with other people. So I'm as interested in getting things back as I am in broadcasting and letting people know what my opinions are or uh, about everything that's going on or things that used to happen in my life or happening now and things that are happening in the world. I'm interested in what your opinion is and interested more, like I say, in your emotional and personal responses, things that reflect something that you've been thinking or feeling. And the way to get in touch with me is to go to my website. You can join my mailing list there, where occasionally I will send out little essays or even poems that I write. Uh, They're not all... I know people, a lot of people are used to me being entirely political or very political for decades. Well, I am occasionally still. And... um, <clears throat> it seems to me you can't really talk about much in this world that doesn't become political once it becomes public, once it goes beyond your skin. So I still do that. And so if you want to join up um, to the mailing list, you can do that by also by going to faderfiles.com, f E D E R F I L E S dot com. And also that's the way to get in touch with me. So the Olympics. <clears throat> Need I say more or less? A um, lot to say about the Olympics. Um, a lot of people predicted, and I was talking um, to some people, I'm talking on this radio program about how uh, there were probably more difficulties um, before the Olympics and before going into these Olympics than any other Olympics I know of. I mean, there were... Maybe it's because the reporting wasn't as much in depth, but there were places like Mexico City where there I think the 1968 Olympics happened in Mexico City. That was that uh, famous one where some of the black American athletes, that was in the midst of uh, various civil wars in this country, um, racial, having to do with the Vietnam War, gender, all kinds of wars that were going on in uh, in the United States. And it was some black athletes that won medals and were on the medal stand that put their arms up during the, um, the Star Spangled Banner in a black power salute. And good for them. You know, this was all part of the evolution of various things that had to happen in this country. But uh, and, and one thing that's um, that's always happened in the Olympics is this um, this whitewashing to use a certain word, this um, this whitewashing of an entire portion of a city or an entire city uh, by itself. I mean, um, people arrive in their tens of thousands. Uh, athletes arrive in their thousands. People arrive in their hundreds of thousands or several hundred thousand as tourists and to visit. And then, of course, the television cameras uh, will poke around the city, show you pictures of the city. Uh, various uh, life in various sections of the city. And the television cameras are um, tools, (laughs) just as the television reporters, television journalists, major television journalists are tools of the larger corporate um, network that is bringing you all these things. Uh, For instance, uh, who broadcast, who brought you... um, The television show, I'm I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you from time to time, a few minutes here and there, or let's say a majority of you watched various um, activities or uh, various contests in the Olympics, swimming, diving, beach volleyball, (laughs) volleyball, I don't know, some of the more uh, table tennis. I know a lot of uh, Chinese people, um, Chinese Americans, too, watch table tennis. I and mean, there are all kinds of things: badminton. There was wrestling. There was uh, hardly any other kind of sport that wasn't represented. Archery. There was uh, skeet shooting, um, and then of course the swimming, and the diving, and the basketball. So all of this stuff that was going, and then track and field, which is <clears throat> perennially, uh, along with the swimming, now uh, the most popular. Uh, thing to watch, and it is fascinating and inspiring and uh, exciting to watch some of this stuff. Uh, so, but but every Olympics, uh, it happened in Beijing, it happened in London, and it happened in Olympics going all the way back for a long, long time. When uh, there's so much money involved, and prestige, and fame, and power of the host city, and there, of course, the host country uh, that the city is in. Um, there, um, there is a lot of whitewashing that goes on. There is a lot of cosmetic uh, surgery that goes on. Speaking of cosmetic surgery, um, it seemed ironic and appropriate that a city like Rio de Janeiro, which is uh, has been for decades now, I think still probably is the world capital of plastic surgery. I mean, more plastic surgery is done on a routine basis down in, in Rio than any place else in the world. And the people who uh, practically discovered it or certainly perfected all kinds of techniques of plastic surgery uh, or are residents of Rio or came from Rio. For some reason, it turned into, and I'm sure there are explanations for this that are cultural and political and racial and everything else. There are all these mixtures of races in uh, Rio, Uh, black, white, uh, everything in between, Indian, slaves, um, people from Portugal who were the original colonial um, masters and mistresses of the place. Um, So all of these uh, races and all of these different different ethnic uh, varieties of people Uh, mingle together. And there is, according to reporters or journalists who are Brazilian, a tremendous amount of racism uh, in Brazil, Uh, no different than most other places in the world. Unfortunately, tending in many places uh, racism that trickles down or sometimes come down like a ton of lead um, from white to black, uh, if you're white, you're all right. If you're black, go on back. You know, something, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're brown, stick around. What is that old, uh, that old black saying? And in Rio, there is a lot of uh, skin lightening that goes on. There's a lot of uh, eternal youth striving that goes on. In fact, when they showed uh, the stands in Rio, when they showed the stands in some of these stadiums, is the plural stadia? It probably is, but I've never received a, a very good education. Uh, when they showed you the, the crowds in the stadiums, you saw a lot of people who clearly, I suppose if you were looking for it, which, which I sort of was, <laughs> uh, you see a lot of, uh, of, of people, uh, especially women, who for some reason sometimes it's more noticeable, who were older but looked much younger than their age. And there was a certain artificial look to them, a certain plastic look to a lot of people. So it's interesting to me that Rio, being the uh, the actual world capital of plastic surgery, they did a lot of plastic surgery. And so like in other Olympics that go back many years, I think one reason we don't know Uh, What was involved with uh, thousands of police and soldiers and other uh, city and state and even federal government officials in these various countries clearing up slums, clearing up slums or papering them over in some way so that the world as it descended. And, you know, things have gotten more and more um, media savvy. Now, everything is uh, available to see and to hear. There is nothing that can be hidden from cameras and from microphones at all anymore between satellites and and uh, the ubiquitous cell phones and uh, television cameras, the coverage involved. So there is nothing that can't be seen unless, of course, a government, a city, a nation, uh, a country wants you not to see it. So, for instance, in London... Uh, where they built the, um, you know, the Olympic Village. The, uh, the, they're always building the Olympic Village. And it's going to be uh, you know, perfect, and it's going to be charming, and it's going to be accessible and functional and comfortable for all the athletes who come from all over the world. Uh, in Rio, uh, they, didn't even be, they couldn't even get it together because the place is essentially falling apart. The state of Rio de Janeiro, I think it's a state, like New York State and then New York City. The state of Rio de Janeiro is broke. It's bankrupt. The city of Rio de Janeiro is broke. It's bankrupt. And yet somehow they've managed, they managed to come up with billions of dollars and use 85,000 police and soldiers and all kinds of other uh, government officials to clean up the place, to make it uh, to make it uh, look as if it was this magic Disney fairy tale Wonderland uh, of uh, of music and charm and dancing and everybody's happy all the time. This has happened every four years in cities going back all the way, you know to for, to London to Beijing. I don't remember where it was before that, and before that, and before that, and before that. And It happened in this uh, last time it was in the United States. I think was Atlanta. I think the last Olympics in the United States was in 1996 in Atlanta, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was. And then before that, uh, I think the last Olympics, Summer Olympics I'm talking about, in, um, in the United States might have been in Los Angeles. I'm not really sure when that was. It could have been in the 70s sometime. <clears throat> and then the Olympics in uh, Munich in 76, All of these places, um, some had less cleaning up to do than other places. Some places where the Olympics took place did not have vast slums, did not have huge numbers of poor people and areas that were completely so poverty stricken that they they could not be made invisible unless, of course, the combined resources of the government, which should have been, you know, on a regular basis for years on end, devoted... To helping these people uh, to build better housing, to to build better roads for everybody, not just the people who were living in poverty, but to build better roads. These cities, all these places, London and to a large extent Beijing, which didn't have um, glaring areas of poverty, but had um, places that uh, the government did not, China did not want you to see. And they uh, spent... For instance, in Beijing, they spent tens of millions of dollars. They shut down various coal-producing plants. They shut down various manufacturing facilities during the two uh, weeks or maybe the run-up to it, maybe three weeks, four weeks, that uh, bracketed the Olympics so that you didn't see all the astounding uh, smog, where sometimes it's so bad, and now it's, though it's less than it used to be. Sometimes it was so bad recently, too, uh, then you couldn't really see down a block, look down a city block or two city blocks, and you could hardly see what was going on, and people walking around everywhere with uh, masks on, filtration masks on of one kind or another, various uh, qualities of mask. So all of these things happened. and in Rio, uh, so and 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 then these governments and the cities like London, I don't know about Beijing. But London, for instance, was a good example. London was 2012. That was the one before this one. In London, um, as in England entirely, but in London, here's a city where everything is falling apart. Everything needs to be fixed. Uh, And there are slums, uh, you know, uh, huge slums, areas of poverty. Uh, Buildings are cracking. Things are falling apart. Things are filthy because they're old and they haven't been fixed. Uh, because of income inequality, which prevails everywhere all the time, uh, things are not fixed. They're not, um, they're not brought up to at uh, to least minimum values, right? <clears throat> so Rio, and so in London, but and yet they will spend billions of dollars. And you, you understand what I'm saying? Millions of dollars were not even spent. Not even hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars were not even spent on fixing up city roads, city parks, city water supply, uh, electric grids, uh, building new housing, especially for people who were uh, living in poverty. None of this was done. And sometimes, you know, uh, some bills were passed by local city councils or, uh, you know, local city governments or uh, national federal governments when they're more involved, less democratic um, yes, you know, money is spent sometimes. When things, when there's a disaster, when a building is so old, uh, it crashes to the ground. When a subway system is so bad that a train, uh, there's a train crash. When roads are so bad that they start swallowing up cars and trucks. <laughs> when, when things are so bad, when the water is so bad that it's making everybody sick, then sometimes the government will grudgingly Spend some of the people's money. It's all, you know, tax money. Most of this money is from tax money from people. We'll spend the people's tax money on fixing these places up. And, but uh, generally speaking, they don't. Money will go where power wants it to go. Money will go where the rich want it to go. And if the rich want it to go to protecting their communities more, to fixing up their streets more, uh, if they don't want to be spending any extra money on um, on slums that are falling apart, if they don't want to create manufacturing uh, or uh, create um, you know factories for people who would have jobs so they, everybody wouldn't be in poverty, if they don't want that, if the powerful, if the rich and the powerful, the people Bernie Sanders are talking about, the 1%, if they don't want that, it generally doesn't happen. So you get a city like London, who's hosting the Olympics, And they spend hundreds of millions of dollars to cosmeticize this city. Is that a word? I don't know. To fix the place up so that it looks um, prosperous, so that it looks clean, so that you don't see—I mean, in most of these cities—I don't know about Beijing, but in most of these cities, like London or Mexico City was a good example, even in 1968, you know, or maybe even more in 1968— All of these big cities, Los Angeles, Atlanta, uh, the streets, like I come down here today uh, on the uh, bus, and it's the middle of the summer, the uh, homeless, or what we used to call the bums, when I was growing up, it was uh, not considered politically incorrect to call people who lay on the streets and begged, you know, with a paper cup and had a cardboard sign and they were filthy and, hadn't, uh, and had no place to live or chose not to live in shelters that were provided by a city. Um, people who just sort of hung around. There was a guy in my neighborhood, and this was uh, a neighborhood in Queens, which was uh, a very upstanding, clean uh, fairly well taken care of. The streets were in good shape. The buildings were in good shape. All the stores were maintained. Things were. This was the 50s I'm talking about, the 50s. And everything was pretty well maintained. People had moved from—it uh, was on the edge of New York City right before Nassau County, which is a fairly wealthy county in New York State. So this was still part of New York City, though. And New York City, you know, of course, had its major slums and tenements and buildings falling apart and whole neighborhoods just sort of crumbling, streets all broken up, filth, garbage, violence, crime, drug use. But this neighborhood I grew up in was sort of between lower middle class and middle class. And people had moved out of slums in the city or out of poverty from the Depression and bought their little houses in this place. And had their quarter acre of land or their eighth acre of land, and uh, I think uh, the all the small houses where I grew up on my block, for instance, had an eighth of an acre. Uh, we had an unusual situation in my family because my aunt and uncle lived right next door to uh, me and my mother. My father had long gone, and there was no fe- you know there were fences between all these eighth acre plots that the little houses were on these were two-bedroom houses, and later on, if you fixed up the attic, you could get a third bedroom, which a lot of people did because they usually had two kids in the family. (laughs) These were the days when um, most people had—for some reason I don't understand. Maybe Dr. Spock had uh, had, uh, suggested that um, this was the best uh, arrangement for having kids— But most people seem to have um, one child and then four years later have a second child, and that was sort of it. (laughs) I know there were so many families in my neighborhood that that had the mother, the father, uh, the brother, the sister, and then uh, uh, four years younger, another brother or sister. And that's the way it was. So you needed three bedrooms. And what they did was they either fixed up part of the basement, which though that was usually a family room, uh, you know, for uh, whatever, playing games or watching TV or leisure activities, whatever. It was a little, small little basement. This, these are small houses I'm talking about. Small, comfortable little hobbit-like houses. They were very comfortable. They weren't, you know, huge and hard to take care of. And, uh, you know, they were just very comfortable little, and they were all new houses. All this housing was built in the uh, right after World War II. And so when I was um, a little kid, they were still brand new. When I was growing up in the 50s and even the 60s, these houses were in pretty good shape because they were new houses, and they were built well. No shoddy crap, you know, in this neighborhood because people wouldn't put up with it. These You're talking about a whole generation that had come from slums in this city, from poverty, from the Bronx and from various places in Brooklyn and various places in Manhattan. And they moved out to this area of Queens because they wanted to move out of the city. Now, they still lived in the environs of New York City, but they wanted, they said, when they went to work, for instance, they used to say, well, I'm going into the city, or if they wanted to go see a movie or a play, or if they wanted to go to uh, uh, RKO Music Hall, you know, Radio City Music Hall, they would say, um, RKO, Radio City Music Hall, they would say, um, they'd get the bus and then to the train, they'd say, I'm going into the city. They... Uh, where, as far as they were concerned, they had moved out of the city. You know, they know they were still part of New York, living in this area of Queens. And so, we lived in this quiet, friendly, comfortable little place. And um, but we had one bum. Uh, there, this phrase "bum," it was. Uh, there, there's a song called "Hallelujah," I'm a bum, which is from the Depression. Bumming was something people did. Uh, it wasn't considered necessarily a noble thing to do by most people, but it was something that was not looked down on. To have no place to live, to have nothing to eat, was not looked down on, and people like this weren't held in contempt a lot like they are now uh, because uh, there were so many of them. Relative to the population during the worst part of the Depression in the 30s, uh, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, mostly men who were on the bum, who were bumming it. You know, they were, uh, I don't know the exact linguistic origin of this, but they were, um, you know, riding uh, freight trains. They were living in what were called Hoover towns or Hoovervilles. He was the president that presided over, the Republican president before um, Roosevelt, that presided over the crash, uh, the, uh, the crazy financial circumstances, a, a, a Republican, absolutely, of course, you know, that presided over the crash that led to all those years of terrible poverty and misery for the entire country. But people were uh, were not, they were called bums and they were not necessarily looked down on so much. In fact, um, one raggy, taggy baseball team was famous. Uh, the Dodgers were called the bums. Um, it was kind of um, a phrase that people use, uh, it was a word that people use that did not carry with it the uh, the tremendous freight now of contempt and disdain that people have for people who are lying on the street or begging or uh, you know asking you for money every two feet. But there's a lot of bums around now, so I'm going to use the old-fashioned phrase. Homeless is the correct phrase to use. That's the politically correct phrase. But there's a lot of bums, you know, come down on the bus, walking in my neighborhood, every 10, 20 feet, sometimes three three people on a block. A lot of them are um, from, um, they're mentally ill. A lot of them are psychotic. Because about, now is it about 20 years ago, or maybe it's more, maybe 25 years ago, uh, there was a law that was passed, i mean stimulated by i think a bunch of federal court decisions. <clears throat> there was a law that was passed by the state of New York, or some court decisions were made where the state of New York had to stop warehousing people in huge mental institutions and they just just they just discharged these people more or less onto the streets uh, initially they found um you know uh, single room occupancy you know these Crummy little uh, tenement buildings that uh, they put even that had little tiny apartments, and they even built more um, you know um, fiberboard walls to make them into little um, nine by ten um, compartments where they just warehouse these people like they were um, like they were old junk. They just threw like they're storage units for human beings. Anyhow, they discharged a lot of people from the mental hospitals. In uh, New York State, and this, particularly in New York City, and they just put them on the street. These people had no jobs; they weren't capable of having jobs after having been uh, spent uh, either, you know, half their lives or many, many years as inmates of um, of very um, often very unpleasant and not very nicely run uh, huge state mental institutions. And they closed some of these places down and. Just put the people out into the communities. And uh, we're dealing with it in New York City to this day that the, a lot of the people who wander the streets are extremely disturbed. So it's not like they're on the bum, like in, uh, it's not exactly like they're on the bum or being bums from the, the 30s. Um, uh, you know, where there are people who aren't mentally ill but just people who can't find any work, there isn't any work. Uh, They ride the rails, so they choose if there's work or, you know, stoop work or hard work, they choose not to do it. They go from one town to another. Uh, People who were formerly, um, you know, artisans or people who worked in offices or people who had responsible jobs, just these jobs ceased to exist. Businesses went out of business all over the country. Banks closed. People had no money. They lost their employment. They lost their places to live. They rode the rails. They lived out in the streets. They lived in 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 villages. Speaking of Olympic villages, that were put up in uh, parks. In Central Park in New York City, there was a huge Hooverville, named after the president, where people lived in you know whatever they could put find to live in cardboard. Shacks, you know, old pieces of metal um, and very much like the uh, and they you know they maybe stole uh, electricity from cables, they found water from various places, they had to go and scoop up water from uh, various open faucets in different parts of the city and bring it back into the um, how sanitation worked i don 't know, and they they scrounged food or they worked sometimes day labor jobs that they found and found enough food to feed themselves and their families. And this is where they lived. And they were dangerous places where they could be very dangerous places. And this was all over the country. These were the bums. Well, in all of these Olympic cities, the same thing happens, right? The same thing happened in Los Angeles, in Mexico City, in London. There were people there who are either mentally ill, disturbed, drug addicts at the very bottom of the barrel People who have nowhere to live, people who the rest of society uh, couldn't care less if they died right in front of them, and then so they could just get the, rid of the stench and the sight of them, right? And uh, they, uh, you know, the cities went in b- before the Olympics and just moved these people. They picked them up, literally picked them up in some cases, put them in police cars, uh, put them in vans and moved them to another part of the city. Maybe temporarily they found some city buildings that weren't being used for other things or were being used for other things and just made them into temporary shelters, temporary shelters. Because as soon as the Olympics are over or were over in these cities, these people were sent right back out onto the street or they wandered back out into the street and um, the authorities couldn't care less because the world was not watching at this moment. So it's uh, ironic to me that the world's um the world's leading city, the most uh visible to use a certain word city for plastic surgery, <laughs> the practice of plastic surgery in the world, with some of the worst slums in the world uh the slums that have hundreds of thousands of people in them, right near the Olympic villages, right near the Olympic villages. And Rio's a city that's built on hills too. Um and presiding over all this, by the way, is a gigantic statue of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A gigantic statue who had come to come into the world for the poor, for the poor. Not for the rich, who uh, include a lot of athletes these days. Not for the rich. Not for corporate sponsors. Not for the television stations. What would Christ do? What is, what, what is that uh, that thing that you was know, very popular, that, that people had license plates with little models in their cars? What would Jesus do? WWJD. What would Jesus do? What indeed would Jesus Christ, who went into the temple and uh, with a stick and smashed up the money changing that was going on in the Holy Temple. What What would he do, the Prince of Peace, who came here for the meek, for the poor, to rescue them from the outrages, the outrages of the rich, of the 1%, right? Of the dictators, of the powerful, of the people who didn't want the poor to exist at all and couldn't care less if they existed as long as they went somewhere else to rot. And as long as they voted for them when they needed to, uh, have them vote for them, and as long as they were able, to, as long as they didn't want to advance anywhere beyond a job, if they could even find a job, that was a minimum wage job. You know, that wasn't even enough to live on. What would Jesus do? So, catch this the 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 uh, this city here. Uh, there was a journalist who um, who has been writing about the preparations for the Olympics, and here's this, this bankrupt state, this bankrupt city. That, uh, is so worried about the, f- the the face of things rather than what's underneath the face. This This capital of cosmetic surgery that is so concerned about how everything looks and they're all singing and dancing. Yeah, I'm sure they're all singing and dancing. It's a great thing to do, singing and dancing. Especially when everything can be so miserable, like it is in Rio de Janeiro for a whole lot of people. For a couple of million people, right? So... Uh, but it's considered a spoil sport thing. It's a negativity and a spoiled sport thing to talk about this. And there is there's a Brazilian journalist, um, I forget her name, who's been writing about all these slums and about all the fa- the fact that Rio is broke and should never uh, it, that it was a sin for them to to have to come up with to, to decide to come up with billions of dollars this bankrupt city with these terrible slums that even the police are afraid to go into. They're so bad. They're so low in the world. They're so vicious. I mean, the, uh, the sanitary conditions and uh, the health conditions are so bad. They're like something that somebody from a science fiction, somebody dreamed up in a science fiction novel. They're so awful. And they, are, of course, are the wave of the future. Um, and so she's been writing about this, about the bankruptcy and the slums and the disappearing act that the government is trying to do with all these people. And she's been accused of being negative and uh, being anti-Brazilian and anti-patriotic. And this is uh, from Sunday's in New York Times. <clears throat> she says, uh, even if I'm accused of being in league with our adversaries, that is to say, people who hate Brazil. You know, She, she was considered to be un-Brazilian by pointing out all the terrible ironies and hypocrisies and the things that were wrong with uh, a place that's broke and poverty-stricken hosting with billions of dollars this uh, beautiful, charming fantasy world of the Olympics. Now, this is not to say that I didn't enjoy the, watching some of the Olympics. I mean, it's exciting to watch... These incredible um, athletes, the world's best athletes, the track and field, the gymnastics, whatever your favorite thing is. Some of it seems absurd and ridiculous to me, like uh, water polo, but that's just me. It's just personal. To watch the swimmers, to see people who are so sometimes weird, (laughs) like some of these runners uh, from places like Ethiopia or Kenya who are so skinny and strange looking, you know, and uh, the gymnasts who are all, they they look bizarre. They don't even look like human beings. They look like uh, munchkins on steroids, which sort of they are. But, you know, just the same, there's something beneath this. It's not just what they show you. And I guess the other part is that um, when I was growing up, the sound like the good old days and nostalgia, well, what can I say about that? Some things were different uh, back in the day. They were Some things were worse, and some things were better. When I was growing up, the Olympics were, as they had always been, amateur competitions. <clears throat> they were I mean, yeah, people cheated, and people had some version of whatever their drugs were in the 1950s. But it was nothing like that it is now. These were amateur competitions where after the Olympics, some people went pro. Like for instance, one of the most famous was uh, Cassius Clay, who won a gold medal in boxing. I think it was in 1964, perhaps for um, the um, for the Olympics, wherever they were held. That he won a gold, or 1960, it might have been 1960, that he won a gold medal for the in the Olympics for boxing for the United States, and later on became Muhammad, changed his name to Muhammad Ali. After the Olympics, a lot of people went pro, and now everybody either is pro already. They're professional athletes or they are they already have contracts that the minute they get out of the Olympics, they are going to um, uh, they are going to become professionals. they're going to join professional teams. But <clears throat> probably three quarters of the people in the Olympics now are already professionals. And to me, And they have, and also they're all wealthy. There are people coming to the Olympic Village. These a lot of these um, professional, a lot of these athletes are people who are wealthy people. Uh, Apparently, although I can't understand exactly how, but I suppose it's easy to explain if you live in other parts of the world. I don't know. The richest athlete in the world I've heard is UCN Bolt. You know the incredible uh, sprinter from uh, Jamaica. I've heard that he is the richest athlete in the world. I guess I'm used to people like Roger Federer or people, you know, or baseball players or international tennis players, people especially who are international athletes, like tennis players at the very top, who have all these endorsements. You know, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, people like that. They have they get rich from endorsements. And um, uh, <clears throat> so it's it's dispiriting to me when... Generally speaking, there was a kind of a level playing field as much as I suppose it's ever possible. After all, I was a kid, and what would I know about finagling, cheating, and corruption and drugs that might have gone on in the 1956 or 60 or 52 Olympics? I really don't know. But one thing for sure was that they had a rule that everybody had to be an amateur. And uh, who, of course, naturally who broke these rules? and fucked everybody over and tried to make fools out of the rest of the world, and in some cases did, by using doping and professional athletes in the Olympics. The Russians, who else? (laughs) What is it about the Russians? They must have the world's worst, speaking of world gold medal records, they must have the world's worst inferiority complex. And why would that be? I don't know. But they are constantly having to show that they are better than anybody else. Maybe next to, I suppose, the Nazis, the Germans and the Nazis in the 1936 Olympics, right? I don't know what. They probably cut a few corners themselves. Um, But the Russians started this in the 60s and 70s and then really amped it up in the 80s and 90s where they were using a tremendous number of various... um, Um, you know, enhancement drugs, steroids, all kinds of human growth hormones, who knows what. I can't keep track of these chemicals. But the Russians practically invented this kind of cheating on an international scale. And once the Russians, and it wasn't just drugs. It wasn't just drugs. The Russians in the 80s, for instance, uh, there was a a tremendous um, battle between the United States hockey uh, team and the Russian hockey team. And the Russians had a habit of, uh, since it was a state, you know, the state owned everything, that teams there um, were were professional teams. The athletes in a place like Russia were professional athletes by virtue of the fact that the state employed them and gave them a lot of money. And they didn't have to go to school or they didn't have to think of their careers afterwards or complete college work or they didn't compete on an amateur basis, the way most of the rest of the world did, certainly the way American athletes generally did. Uh, these were professional athletes. So when they came to play, and the Russians started winning all these gold medals in the 70s, especially in the 80s, uh, and it was a combination of drugs and using professional athletes. One of the most famous instances of, um, <clears throat> of this is, uh, and there are movies about this and documentaries about um, the Winter Olympics, and it was sometime in the 80s, at Lake Placid in New New York State, where the American hockey team, which was composed of amateur hockey players, mostly from colleges, beat the Russian hockey team, which was composed of uh, players who were professional hockey players, who were bigger, faster, stronger and on the whole, maybe about five years older or 10 years older than these college kids. And they beat the, these college kids. The American amateurs beat them at the, at their game. But um, this uh, woman in—you uh, know what? Let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. We're going to take a little break. Yeah, amateurs. Amateurs. Now, like I say, I was a kid back in the 50s and 60s. I don't know, really, I don't know how much corruption or how many professionals were uh, you know, secreted into the game by various different countries. I don't know. Uh, certainly they were at the level of professionals, and a lot of them after the Olympic Games um, went into professional sports of various kinds, uh, you know, football, baseball, um, uh, whatever international track and field, where it became a profession, um, they did all kinds of endorsements. But before that, they were supposed to be clean and clear of professional influence. And why is that? Because the idea of a level playing field—literally a level playing field. I mean, you know, if it's if a playing field, if a soccer pitch, or a playing field where or two teams are pitted against each other, like or a hockey rink, if it's tipped from one side to the other, then it's the team that's on the high ground is going to uh, wind up inevitably winning. If the rules are rigged in favor of one team or another, it is not a level playing field. And one thing we all assumed, and like I say, we could have been the victims of uh, you know, massive propaganda and bullshit, But somehow I believe that it was probably more true in those days, that it was mostly amateurs, that the rules generally applied. Sometimes, yes, you know how it is, that the judges, (laughs) again, the judges from places like the Soviet Union or China, I don't know, or from dictatorships. The judges from dictatorships seemed to be, from places that were not democracies, didn't seem to understand or didn't one understand the idea of a level playing field? Because that has nothing to do with being in a dictatorship or as some kind of tyranny like that. I mean, what did Hitler understand in 1936 at the, at the at the Munich Olympics, or was it at Berlin, the Olympics? The 1936 German Olympics, the Nazi Olympics. What did he understand about a level playing field? What did they? What did the Nazis care, or the communists care? About level playing fields and about applying rules equally to everybody, this was truly an idea uh, that was dreamed up, I suppose, originally. Although it wasn't a true democracy by the Greeks when they had their uh, their Olympics, uh, you know, uh, thousands of years ago. And then the Olympics started again. What was it, 1896? I forget. 1892, when the when the modern Olympics again started, uh, mostly stimulated by uh, or organized by the British uh, on the Greek ideal. But the idea was to have something even, right? And you know, the, way, the way you prevail is by training, is by talent, is by speed, is by strength, is by sheer ability, right? And if it's teamwork, then the team uh, is a better team. May the best team win. May the best man or woman win, but now, if people are taking drugs, uh, I mean, of course, and this spread to... Um, now, whether or not this existed in professional ball, I don't know. I've heard uh, stories that um, <clears throat> baseball writers covered this stuff up, but it was well known that a lot of um, uh, baseball players back in the 50s, you know, people, I don't know about Mickey Mantle, but other baseball players who were big stars took um, some kind of strange noise... And coming over, um, I don't know, maybe it's from uh, outside the studio. I hope you can't hear it over the air. Anyhow, um, you know, may, there were rumors that, that baseball players, some baseball players, in, going all the way back to the 30s, 40s, but especially in the 50s, you know, the uh, the era I'm talking about, people, you know, uh, who were superstars, or stars at least, baseball stars, were taking some form of, uh, at least methadrine, that they were taking speed so that they wouldn't be so they would be super hopped up and uh you know um the focused in a way that you can be if you take some kind of speed and that give them an unfair advantage and um maybe a little bit more uh false but uh temporary strength over other so speed and strength that was um drug fueled I don't know but now uh what was it <clears throat> something like uh three-quarters to 90 percent of Russian athletes were barred from the Olympics because of uh, the prevalence of doping on a state-sponsored level. The state doping lab in, um, in, uh, in Russia was basically ordered by the government to, uh, to make sure that the athletes had an unfair advantage on other people. And that's what people really in democracies and that's what people in our democracy really always want. And that's what these games are supposed to represent, I suppose, among other things. But now it's all – it's so commercial that it, 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 it doesn't completely take away. Obviously, like, if you watch the swimming and you watch the track and field and you watch people trying their very best and you assume or you hope that they're not using drugs – And it is incredibly exciting to see people who are competing and they didn't start, a lot of them didn't start out rich, a lot of them started out poor, but they trained and trained and trained and they have tremendous talent and tremendous heart and devotion and focus and willpower to just be better than other people at what they're doing and then finally to be, quote-unquote, the best in the world. I'm sure that there are people who run faster and who are stronger and can throw things uh, further and can swim better than some of the people who won medals at the Olympics. They, you know, maybe didn't have the opportunity to... Maybe they don't even know about the Olympics. (laughs) I once heard Gene Shepard of great radio fame said that he once... uh, He found it very amusing that the man who ran the fastest and that had been clocked as running the fastest in the world... Um, his speed was uh, way above the fastest runner that had ever been recorded, even the Olympics. And it turned out he was being chased by a rhinoceros. So there, are, there are people in the world who are no doubt stronger than the strongest people in the Olympics, who are maybe better at running, better at swimming, but they haven't made it to the Olympics these days. Though they probably are. Also, I loved watching the soccer games. I really started to enjoy the soccer games, called football by the rest of the world. And Brazil, is an, it's a religion. Uh, ostensibly, uh, Roman Catholicism is the religion of Brazil, but the real religion is soccer there. And uh, the stadium is really an astounding uh, place. So this woman was writing, this uh, professional uh, journalist, this journalist from Sao Paulo in Brazil, was writing about... Um, about the things that were wrong, the things were going on underneath, right? The uh, picture of Dorian Gray and it's all its ugliness, right? Uh, the real Dorian Gray underneath and the cosmetics of, uh, of uh, the cover-up down in Rio. And she said, even if I'm accused of being in league with, uh, uh, with the, un, the quote-unquote unpatriotic <clears throat> or anti-Brazilians, I think we should talk about the wall that was built alongside the road from Rio's International Airport to cover the view of the favelas. Those are the uh, horrible slums. They built a wall. They took money that they don't have. This place that is bankrupt, that didn't have even the money to pay police and fire personnel and emergency medical personnel, they didn't have money to even pay them their salaries on a weekly basis. When some of the athletes showed up originally uh, first in um, in Rio to get ready for the Olympics when they showed up a couple of weeks early to occupy the Olympic villages, they were met at the airports by representatives, cops, and firemen and um, and emergency medical personnel holding up signs saying that they hadn 't been paid. This is what 's going on. this is a place where eighty five thousand Uh, policemen and soldiers were especially imported into Rio to keep the peace and to keep people. And even then, they couldn't stop all the crime. There were numerous examples of robberies and holdups. The head of security for the Rio Olympics was held up at knife point in Rio, right? This is the kind of place that we're talking about. They built, this is a place that has no money to pay their own cops and firemen, they built a wall. They found the money to build a wall alongside the road from Rio's international airport to cover the view of the slums. Talk about cosmetic surgery. Talk about facelifting. Uh, she said, uh, "This is quoting this journalist." We have to demand that all costs involved in the Olympic preparation are in the Olympics preparation are divulged and duly accounted for, which is still far from happening. We cannot forget the thousands of families evicted to make way for Olympic venues. They just empty out. They pick a place for the Olympic Village that fits their plans. They empty the people out who live there, usually poor people. Get out. You're gone. Go away. Where are you going to stay? Who cares? We cannot forget the thousands of families evicted to make way for Olympic venues, including the Olympic Village, which will be eventually converted to high-end condominiums. Right? Right? So evict thousands of poor people, have the Olympic Village before all these athletes are now who are rich from, uh, from corporate sponsorships and uh, from, you know, doing endorsements. And then later on, turn it into um, high-end condominiums and then deposit even more thousands of people into slums that are the worst slums in the world. We must keep asking for more transportation, she says, transportation infrastructure for lines that extend beyond the scenic central routes connecting the Olympic venues. After the final ceremonies, which were yesterday, when the last fireworks have been launched and all the foreign journalists have returned home, a bankrupt state of Rio will be left to pick up the pieces, and neither patriotism nor the love of sports will entitle us to overlook our reality. Well, that's what happens. This is what happens. You can't separate something which is so fascinating and exciting and interesting as something like the Olympics. You cannot separate it from corruption, money, and politics. It's the world we live in. It's the world we live in, and will continue to be. We need a level playing field, and we always have to fight for it, even if we lose every time we have to keep doing it.
1: your pardon walk now and down side. if you walk with Jesus he'll save your soul you gotta keep the devil down in the hole he's got the fire and the fury at his command You don't have to worry